Welcome once again to Humble Perspectives. Before I begin to read from my book today, I wanted to mention a couple things. One, I appreciate feedback uh, on my podcast, and I would especially encourage you, if you see fit, to leave feedback right on the podcast page itself. Um, that could be helpful. Also, I appreciate the kind of feedback that gives me uh, some idea of how I'm coming across. Especially appreciate helpful suggestions. Uh, recently, someone suggested that I add something at the end because when I just stop right at the end of the chapter and say nothing else, it kind of leaves things hanging up in the air. Leaving things on, up in the air a bit in a book is not a bad thing because it makes people want to read the next chapter, but it's not helpful in a podcast. And I recognize that. And the last episode, I planned to do that and then forgot. So I will be trying to remember that this time. Second thing I want to say is this is not a long chapter, but uh, the one I'm going to read today talks about a very important point in my life, a significant change that the Lord began and in many ways is still working in both the way I think and hopefully in the way I act. So I look forward to this uh, reading today for my own recollection and reinforcement as well as what it may offer to you my listeners. Thus I begin with chapter 12 of How Shall We Then Live? This chapter is titled, What Does a Servant Do? You are going to be Hal Langevin's servant. The thought came to me strongly and clearly as if the speaker were sitting next to me. I was reading the Bible and praying early on a Monday morning, August 8, 1977. Actually, praying is too weak a description. I had been crying out of the depths of my heart in desperation. We had had no income since May. We had moved from North Dakota to Minneapolis. We had traveled to Ohio. We'd set up housekeeping. The bills kept coming in. Even though we had received a monetary gift or two, we were broke, and I had no job prospects. Before moving, I had made two trips job hunting with other brothers from Grand Forks, with only the one interview coming out of that. Soon after we moved, Bill Bagby, a member of the servants, recommended that I visit a friend of his who was an employment counselor. This man, at Bill's request, was willing to give me advice about my resume for no charge. It was not an encouraging experience. My resume listed a few personal facts, my education history, and my job history from paperboy to farmhand to gas station attendant to pastor to college instructor. The job counselor struck X's through everything having to do with pastoring and teaching, saying that those would be minuses to most employers. That did not leave much. It looked like I had worked at all, had not worked at all for five years. Each Sunday, I picked up a newspaper, the edition with the most classified ads for jobs. 
I made many calls. I sent in resumes. I filled out applications. I did not even get one more interview. Desperate for any income, I had applied for a job as a pizza delivery man. I called to follow up on the application. The manager simply said that I was overqualified. I had too much education. It was not the only time I'd heard that response. I was even tempted to question whether we had missed God's leading when we had resigned from Wycliffe and cast our lot with the community, even though at the deepest level I knew better. I was battling with anxiety and fear. On August 5th, after expressing my desperation to God, I began a time of fasting and sought to surrender myself and our situation into the Lord's hands. It was on the beginning of the fourth day of that fast that the thought came, you are going to be Hal Longevin's servant. I was immediately convinced that I'd heard from the Lord, although I was perplexed by the content of the statement. Hal was one of the primary leaders in this large community. I'd met him only one time at midnight in the home of the Cunninghams when Hal came to greet the men who'd come in the first group from Grand Forks to seek jobs. I had no reason to think he even remembered my name. What's more, his servant? No one I knew had servants. Why would Hal have one? What would his servant do? And yet, in spite of it making no sense, I still believed I had heard the Lord say this to me. Therefore, that morning when I headed out to fill out some more job applications, I first stopped at the servant's secondary, secondary office site on 54th Street, just east of Lindell Avenue. The main office, where the primary leaders, Jack Brombach and Howe, had their offices, was on Grand Avenue near 48th Street. The 54th Street office space had been rented for some administrative functions, many related to all the people moving into the Twin Cities in order to join the community. Mike Callahan had an office there. His primary job was to assist with moving logistics. Since David White, the head of our home fellowship or our home group, had not yet moved, I was looking to Mike for pastoral care during the transition. He was in the office that morning. After exchanging greetings, I plunged right in and submitted the word for his discernment. I believe the Lord spoke to me this morning saying that I am to be Hal Longevin's servant. What's a servant? That's interesting, he responded. The coordinators have decided that they need to have men who help them with their administrative work. Biblically, you could call these helpers deacons, but in the community they will be called servants. But I don't think that this is the Lord speaking to you. Well, I left at peace. Sure, I still wondered what that had all been about. However, Michael represented spiritual authority in my life at that time. I had submitted the word. He had offered his opinion about it. It was no longer my concern. We had been invited to have dinner with Bill and Nan Bagby on Tuesday evening at their home on Lindale Avenue. Dan and Faye Smithwick, who had also moved from Grand Forks, were living with the Bagbys at the time because they had made a deal to buy the Bagbys' home but the Bagby's new home was not yet available. While we were at their house about seven o'clock, the phone rang. To my surprise, 
Nan called me to the phone. Hello, I said. This is Jack Brombeck, I heard. I'm sorry to interrupt your visit, but Mike Callahan told me where you were and I needed to talk to you as soon as possible. We've been working to select servants for the coordinators. We want Mike to be my servant and we would like you to be Hal's servant. Could you meet us for breakfast at St. Sears restaurant tomorrow morning so we can talk about it? Yes, sir, I replied calmly on the outside. What time should I be there? Later, Mike told me that soon after I'd left his office, Larry Alberts had walked in. As Larry was leaving, he said offhandedly, Pray for us today. We're trying to discern who should be servants to Jack and Hal. Mike replied, That's interesting. Steve Humble came in a while ago. He told me that he thought the Lord had told him that he was to be Hal's servant. I don't remember anything about the rest of that night. But early the next morning, I walked the mile and a half from our house to St. Sears restaurant. Thoughts tumbled through my mind as I walked. Nearing the restaurant, I was crossing the bridge on Lindale Avenue over Minnehaha Creek, known because of the poem Hiawatha, by the way. When I said aloud, not expecting an answer, of course, Lord, what does a servant do? Immediately, in my spirit, I heard God's voice clearly, whatever he is told. The breakfast was anticlimactic in one sense. At that point, it was just a matter of detail. There was no question that I would accept the opportunity. However, to my surprise, I discovered that I was being offered employment. I was to make $800 a month. In our five years of marriage, we had never made 5000 in any single year. Now we were to make $9,600 in a year. So the next morning, August 11th, I showed up at Grand, the Grand Avenue office to start serving Hal. I met Hal at the office that Thursday morning. He introduced me to his secretary, Suzanne Paris, and to Jack Brombach's secretary, Carol Quest, whose desks were in the front room, which previously had been the living room of a house. Jack's office, once a bedroom, was also in the front of the building to the left of the secretary's office. Michael Callahan was moving into his new office in the room behind Jack's. Hal's office, previously the kitchen, was behind the secretary's office. We walked down the stairs to the basement. Straight ahead at the bottom of the stairs, a door led into a conference room furnished with couches and overstuffed chairs. The door to the right at the bottom of the stairs led into my new office, which contained a desk, two chairs, a bookcase, and a file cabinet. After looking over the building, Hal and I went back upstairs to his office in order to discuss my new job in more detail. As we talked, I began to get a clearer view of what would be expected of me. Several coordinators led the servants of the light. Among these, Jack was the overall coordinator, which would be comparable to a senior pastor, a presiding elder, or a bishop in church terminology. Hal and Jack worked together as the head coordinators, although Larry Alberts would shortly be added to them. Their duties included overseeing the work of the district coordinators, planning the agendas for coordinator meetings, and representing the servants of the light in outside connections. At that time, Hal was leading 
a geographical district of the community in South Minneapolis, which consisted of about 125 people. He was also giving pastoral oversight to a few district coordinators and to several leaders of smaller communities in other cities. Howe was also responsible to see that those moving from other communities to be members of the Servants of Light had the housing they needed. Sometimes it was temporary housing for families, such as we had had with the Dreesons and the Landmans. Other times it was placement of single adults into various households and into apartments with other singles around the Twin Cities. My job, simply put, was to assist Howe as called upon. I was to keep track of his schedule. Each morning I was to meet with him to plan the day, which often included running some errands and setting up appointments. He would also assign me research projects as needed. Sometimes he would want to talk with me through some matter to help him clarify his own thinking. Then he usually would ask me to organize and write up the conclusions. The first priority was that I get to know how and his way of thinking. I also needed to get familiar with the people in the community. As a practical means to that end, Hal asked me to begin to work with him in placing people in the various living situations. This meant getting acquainted with, with the available living situations, learning where they were geographically, who lived in them, and the strengths and weaknesses deriving from the relationships of those living there from Hal's perspective. Plus, I would need to become familiar with specific concerns of those needing housing. I've never been strong on remembering names and details about people. One of the signs of, God grace, of God's grace and his call for me to serve Hal was that over the next several weeks and months, I found myself able to learn and remember many facts about people. Things like where they lived, where they worked, who they lived with, and where they came from. I seem to become a repository for those sorts of facts to the point that after a short time, when I would meet someone in the community for the first time face to face, very often I would already know many things about the person. Sadly, this grace lifted as soon as my work for Hal was completed, and now I'm as weak as ever in remembering names and details about people. One thing I began to learn quickly was that in order to develop community life, it matters where people live. To actually live in community means, first of all, living life together. It's not a matter of meetings and special activities. Regular meetings are necessary, mostly in order to keep the vision clear and to develop and keep oriented around a common commitment. Special events and activities have their place in building a common identity and common experience. However, Truly living in community means sharing life together in very practical ways. I began to understand more fully that the new commandment, which Jesus gave to his apostles during the Passover meal, just before his arrest and crucifixion, was not a call to some emotion with a religious or mystical meaning. Rather, it is a call to a down-to-earth practical way of living. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, 34-35 People will not recognize us as Jesus' disciples because we have deep feelings for one another. 
people will not recognize us as Jesus' disciples because we fellowship the back of one another's heads in church meetings, as Bob Mumford used to say. People will not recognize us as Jesus' disciples because we get together for Bible studies and small group fellowships. Rather, if people are to recognize that we are Jesus' disciples, they need to see our, see our love for one another in action, to see our love for one another demonstrated. I came to understand that the simplest way to allow people to see our interactions is to live near, near one another so that we can be involved with one another in real life, borrowing a cup of sugar or a tool, working on a car together, mowing each other's lawns, or caring for each other's children. Of course, we pray together, sing together, worship together, and study together. Why? Because these activities are also a part of what it means to live life together as the people of God. We members of the Servants of Light made a serious commitment to live life together. To facilitate this commitment, our leaders, like those in a number of other Christian communities, were at the time developing a strategy for building neighborhood clusters. Our leaders prayerfully and thoughtfully identified neighborhoods scattered throughout the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and designated them to be places where we were encouraged to live near one another. Sometimes there would be someone already living in an area where others could move. The optimum situation would include a variety of housing situations. Variety in terms of price, but also variety in terms of type single-family homes, multiple-family dwellings, apartment buildings. The servants' leaders encouraged new members moving into the Twin Cities to make their homes in these designated areas. Quite a few established members of the community also sold homes and moved into one of the neighborhood clusters. Once I began to get settled into my new life as a servant, Patricia and I were able to start focusing on our own new life in the community. Living in the fourplex with other community families enhanced our ability to integrate into community life. The pattern of our life together began to develop in late August after the Dreesons had moved into their apartment in our building. Since the community was growing in number quickly, new geographical districts were being identified and new district coordinators were being appointed. Dan had been appointed coordinator of the newly formed Central District, which encompassed a good deal of the southern sector of Minneapolis. Dan was also the pastoral head of our building and of our men's group. Initially, there were four men in our group, four married men, Dan Gleason, Frank Williams, Dan Dreesen, the leader, and me. Before long, Al Lopez and his family moved in to a house across the street, and Al was added to our men's group. Sometimes we also met with Dan Kalina, Jay Rosengren, and Ron Lammers, single men who lived with the Dreesons. Dan's wife Joyce led the women's group, consisting of our wives and sometimes the single women who were members of the Dreesons' household. In the Servants of the Light, which was renamed, renamed the Servants of the Lord that fall, the word head was used to designate men with pastoral authority. It's another example of avoiding churchy words in the community. Not only did this practice help minimize confusion, both for members of the community and for various denominational churches to which the members belong, but it also allowed us to define the meanings of the word we use rather than be boxed in by religious connotations that many 
so-called churchy words, carry. Recognizing and submitting to spiritual authority was an important value to us because we saw that, according to Scripture, God delegates authority to human leaders in the various spheres of life. For example, husbands are leaders of their wives, parents, leaders of their children, civil authorities of the citizens, and elders of the churches. We recognize that the New Testament method for training new believers and also new leaders is person-to-person discipling in personal relationships. Jesus commissioned the first apostles to go and make disciples whom they were to baptize and teach to obey the Lord's commands. Paul used the same principle in his work and he described it in his instructions to Timothy. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2.2 In our community, the body of coordinators was responsible to lead, oversee, and care for the whole body. Each district coordinator worked with a group of men called district heads to oversee and lead a geographical district. The district heads and sometimes a few others gave leadership, oversight, and care to the men of the community who were organized into men's groups. The men's group structure provided a means for personal training and discipleship. We commonly use the word head in the community speak of leaders. The term head and the structure itself were derived from the model of Israel's leadership structure in the wilderness. Following the counsel of his father-in-law, Jethro, Moses had the people recommend rulers or heads over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Exodus 18, 13-26, and Deuteronomy 1, 9-15. Later, God would direct Moses to select 70 men from among these leaders upon whom the Spirit of God came. Thus, the 70 were divinely ordained and equipped to serve with Moses as elders of the whole nation of Israel. Numbers 11, 21-30. In our building, other than the Dreesons, The families were all quite new to living in community. To facilitate our growth, Dan established some guidelines by which we all agreed to live. One agreement was that we put locks on the outside doors of the apartment building. Then we kept the doors to our apartment open, except for times when we specifically wanted private family time. This meant our homes were open to others in the building. The freedom to enter one another's homes in this way helped us to build a sense of family with one another. In addition, we had a common meal together every Tuesday evening, and all whose church service schedule allowed had Sunday brunch together. Having made the decision to be in community, I jumped in wholeheartedly, or maybe I should say heedlessly for the most part. Patricia, on the other hand, had a more difficult transition. It seemed as if she had to overcome resistance with every step into community life. She herself later would describe her experience as leaving skid marks from dragging her heels. Only much later did I come to understand that the difficulty she experienced was not rebellion, nor was it simply due to fear. I did not take into account at all the impact on her that the changes we had made would have. Because of me, she had been thrust out of her church heritage, virtually cut off from my parents, and torn from her sense of call to foreign missions. In addition, she had just had a new baby, 
had made a major geographical move, had lost her dad, had missed his funeral, had been homeless for a few weeks, and had been almost without financial resources for over three months. Then she was put into a situation with virtually no privacy. I went to work five days a week. She was there in the apartment all day with three ladies whom she barely knew. Even so, she continued to choose to follow my lead and she did gradually adjust to our new life. From time to time we had household meetings that included all the adults in the building. In these meetings we talked about our life together. We identified things that needed to change. We celebrated together. We worked together maintaining the building. Community life was extremely down-to-earth in a situation like that. Every other week we joined with others in our district for worship and teaching. And then on the weeks, the other weeks besides that, the whole community gathered for a huge worship celebration and to receive teaching concerning our life together from the head coordinators. Most of us also participated in the weekly outreach prayer meeting. Patricia and I began to go through training courses designed to help us more fully understand and embrace our shared life. These courses consisted of the Foundations 2 course, which had one track for married couples and another for single adults, Christian personal relationships, living in Christian community, the Christian in his emotions, the fruit of the Spirit, and Christians and missions. In the late winter of 1978, the leaders set aside two Saturdays to present a set of teachings on the roles of men and women. Steve Clark from the Word of God community in Ann Arbor, Michigan had developed the teaching along with several community members who had helped especially with the research. As a footnote, that material was published in a book Author Stephen B. Clark, title Man and Woman in Christ, an Examination of the Roles of Men and Women in Light of Scripture and the Social Sciences. Published in Ann Arbor, Michigan by Servant Books in 1980. In my opinion, this book is one of the definitive treatments of this subject. I don't know that it's still in print, but if you have any interest in this area, I'd recommend it even if you have to find a used copy. The material was timely in the view of the radical changes that were developing in American culture with the rising influence of radical feminism and the homosexual rights movement. As an aside, right away you're thinking now this is 1977-1978 when we're taking this course and you look where our nation has gone since that time and you realize that we were on the cutting edge of trying to wrestle through how to live and be consistent with the biblical view of these issues. In this course we received a thorough exegesis of the relevant scriptural material along with direction for wisely applying the teaching. The point of the course was to be faithful to the wisdom of God in scripture without trying to make absolutes where the Bible didn't make them. Since we were seeking to develop a common way of life, however, we had to divine the ways in which we would apply the scriptural wisdom in our homes and community. Steve Clark used studies from social scientists to demonstrate typical roles of men and women in a wide variety of cultures. 
While there are variations in cultures, we saw that the variations are usually not as extreme as promoted by some who have rejected tradition and are trying to make their own opinions and desires acceptable. And what is more, many of them are trying to establish their, their own choices as the norm for all of us. Much of that teaching reinforced the values practiced, even if not specifically taught, in my home as I was growing up. Teaching showed that a division of labor between men and women has been the norm in cultures throughout history. The specifics of the assigned tasks vary, but the fact that there has been a division of labor can hardly be disputed. This should be no surprise to Christians, since scripture as well as the church's creeds reveal that there is a division of labor in the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in a perfect union, equal in every way, yet distinct persons who do different tasks in perfect cooperation. If God's like that, why wouldn't our relationships reflect that? Likewise, Scripture reveals that human beings, both individuals and the human race, are created in the image of God, an image that is reflected in male and female persons. Genesis 1, 26-28, 2, 18, and 21 to 24. Although the applications taught in the course were mostly practical, it also addressed the matter of teaching authority in the Christian community. The denomination in which I grew up, like many others that began after the 19th century women's movement, had no restriction on the role of women in the church. There were several women in our denomination who served as pastors and evangelists. I had never heard the practice questioned on the basis of scripture in our churches. I do remember that while in high school, I visited a church in Wapakoneta, Ohio with Dad, who was general superintendent at the time. A woman pastored that church, and as we left, Dad commented offhandedly, you almost never see a church pastored by a woman that doesn't have a lot of problems. While his comment did not seem related to scripture in his thinking, several years later, when I began to study the New Testament more thoroughly, I began to question that practice. I had come to the conviction that the people of God must wrestle with the biblical teaching found in passages such as 1 Corinthians 11, 1-16, 1 Corinthians 14, 33-38, and 1 Timothy 2, 8-14, even though the passages are challenging to interpret. The application made in the teaching we received from Steve Clark was that in Scripture God has assigned the government and teaching authority of the church to men. At the same time, it recognized the Christian community's dire need for women who working in coordination with and in submission to their husbands and community leaders can lead and teach women in the community. In contradistinction to most contemporary discussion, the issue is not equality and not worth nor is it whether or not women can be ministers. We are all equally valuable as God's children, and we are all called to be ministers, in other words, to serve. The fundamental issues are that the distinction of gender is necessary for us because we were created to image God, and the division of labor helps us to fulfill God's purpose for us within the order of his creation. 
The scriptures began to take on an even greater meaning as I began to read them from within a community of believers who were intentionally seeking to live out full lives according to the wisdom and instruction of our Lord. Certainly the scriptures can and should be read by each individual. And the Holy Spirit does work in each of us to apply the scriptures to our own lives. The scripture should also be studied theologically as we seek to understand better the unfolding themes and topics that God has revealed, which we commonly call doctrines in our English language. I began to note, however, that in the scriptures where the English word doctrine is used in the King James Version and in several other Bible translations to translate the Greek word didaskalia, the teaching referred to most often is instruction about how God's people are to live together, not the theological material most Christians call doctrine today. The teaching that we received in community was good doctrine in the sense that it was practical instruction and wisdom concerning how to live faithfully as the people of God in the midst of an increasingly corrupt society. There are many other passages. I finished the reading of the chapter, by the way. There are many, several other passages that could be considered uh, on this topic. If anything, this chapter, which is part of the book that I wrote probably nearly 20 years ago, is more pertinent today than it was then, except the culture around us has moved so far that for people to take seriously the Bible today, even in the churches, seems like it's very, very, very difficult because we have to take stands that are not only unpopular, but in some cases are different than the laws of our land or of the practices of companies that we might work for. But these are critical issues and God's people need to be dealing with this kind of stuff and figuring out how to live faithfully to the Lord's purpose and not give in to the world's attempts to destroy God's image in human beings by destroying the difference between male and female the way in which he created humans to be. God bless you. And... Uh, I pray that there's been some seed sown in this for some that will make a difference as you seek the Lord about it.